Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Cheers, my friend. Cheers to you too. And I am, uh, yeah, okay. You got some blue run, haven't you? You got some blue run. I, I was, I was so jealous of uh, of you last time that I thought, what can I have that Brian won't have? Mm. I haven't got a blue run. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have some. Uh, I was all. I used to call it Geneva, and I was sorry Geneva, and I've been corrected by Dutch uh, people to to say uh, Geneva, and ah. uh, or something in between. Which I know, I know. So I've always I, I got it wrong. Yeah, um, you you introduced me to it as yeah, Geneva. Yeah, well, I was trying to be all fancy and so forth, but and obviously I was <laughs> like incorrect. one does. Indeed, I'm, so I'm taking the label. So th- this is a uh, a small batch run of five year old uh, Geneva, which I like very much. It's got the bottle number and so forth written on it. And, oh, nice! Uh, yeah, it's um, it's great. For a little while, I couldn't get it there, and now it's back available to me again. So well. Cheers. According to the label, it's Uda. Is that, is yeah, that, it's old. So there's, old, there's different yeah. styles of making it old and new, yeah. and um, it doesn't refer to the age of the bot- of the bottle. It re- it's the method which they is used to to, do, to do, make it. Do I don't know if you recall the first time you introduced me to how do I say it? Geneva. Geneva, apparently. Geneva. Yeah. But uh, I got chewed out by the uh, proprietor of the establishment. Oh yeah, it's one of my favorite bars. Yeah, it's, it's one of my favorite bars in, in Amsterdam. You tried to order something else? No. Yeah, <laughs> right. Because because they've got they've got walls and walls of yeah. brown liquor, and yeah. so I think I asked. I didn't even ask for a bourbon. I just asked for whiskey, and you're right. No. No. And he, just, it's just, and he just looked at, he just kept looking at you. No, yeah, I, I do remember that. We ate some great cheese. We had drank some great booze. Uh, I've got some photos from that night. Uh, so, so, so we've had, uh, we've had, requ- our fans are very active, which we love. And we've had a request to do a gin episode. And so yep. I'm, I'm going to ask lawyers aren't supposed to ask questions. They don't know the answer to, but I'm going to ask, is this qualify as gin? It does not, right? No, it's same sort of family. I mean, certainly, I think the base spirit's same and much closer to some gins, closer to gin than, than any other spirit. But no, it's not a, it's not a gin. Uh, but then again, the other thing, as you say, active, uh, active listeners, I have been admirably corrected in the last episode. I, I did my best to pronounce a Dutch name. You may recall, nothing yes. has so stirred our audience as my mispronunciation <laughs> of, a, of a Dutch name. My mispronunciation was corrected multiple times by friendly Dutchmen. So thank you uh, for that. Well, I, I am not a friendly Dutchman, but I will just mention that you're mispronunciation was fixed mispronunciation i did it sec- i went around the second time right <laughs> yeah cheers. that should be that should be a pass it should be like the five second rule cheers yeah now look so we have a lot to talk about today but again our active listeners um there's a debate a healthy debate about do we just get right to the story or do we chat it up well i we- note that the last time we we did a full six minutes on booze before we got to it's story three yes i've started so- i've started saying on twitter if you just want the history story the booze chat stops at minute x well so let's try let's try it differently today right. and uh, i'm going to put a little easter egg out there for our listeners and anyone who shows up on six or seven june in new york city with us with Mike Cole, with uh, some ghosts and everything. We'll have this in the show notes. You can, you can sign up, uh, gets a free drink. The first person who comes up to me and tells me where this particular line comes from, which also is my way of saying, let's tell the story. Get to it, Tomalock. 
It sounds don't say nice. it. Don't say it. Okay. Hang on. Right. It should be easy to find. Yeah, I think yeah, it's I think so I've specific. It. Yeah. I, I but, think I've uh, it. Our, our listeners and viewers know that we're big West Wing fans, but perhaps we're introducing something else into the show. And one last thing before we get to it, and that is I'm having my blue run, as, I, as you saw, but it's also morning here in, in Seattle where I live. I appreciate your commitment. And so I am going to also have this, which is a little um, grapefruit and vodka. And the reason I mention it, and it's mostly grapefruit, Alex, so right. no worries. The reason I mention it is this is Polish vodka. And although it seems silly, yeah. I am never going to have Russian vodka again. So, Well, I do you know what? I'm, I might have Russian vodka if it was from a Russian who was proudly hostile to the Putin regime, you know, had tried to set up with you know, the, the real Russian techniques, but outside Russia because they couldn't stand it anymore. That's a Russian vodka I'd proudly yeah. drink. Short yeah. of that. No, I, in fact, I remember some years ago, I saw an advert in America for a vodka that said, our vodka is so pure, we took the Russian out of it. And, uh, and I, at the time, I thought that was quite witty. Now I think it's really profound, right? And maybe patriotic. And I, I'm with you. We, we should look for that. Listeners and viewers, tell us a good Russian vodka we can find that is not made in Putin's uh, tyrannical domain. And with that, Alex, and it's going to be an obvious tie-in to what's happening now, but what's our story for today? I'm going to tell the um, story that Arthur Kersler recounts in one of his memoirs. Kersler is not a um, figure without controversy in literary history. Um, he, he has supporters. He has many detractors. This is Darkness at Noon, yeah? Yeah, that he's the author of Darkness at Noon, yeah. although this story is not from Darkness at Noon. Right. Um, he, um, he's unquestionably a very good writer. And he tells a story that I, um, I thought was very interesting about the quirks and coincidences of history that can be the difference between life and death. And it's, it goes like this. Um, there was a man called Sir Peter Chalmers Mitchell, who as the name might suggest is British, who was an eminent zoologist in, uh, in the UK. He'd founded a, a quite famous zoo here in, in England called Whipsnade Zoo. And uh, he, in seeking a restful retirement, uh, retired to the tranquility of Malaga just in time for the Spanish Civil War to start. Mm -mm. Uh, bluffer's guide to the Spanish Civil War. Government was on the political left. Uh, the rebels were on the political right. Neither were nice, uh, but the rebels were much worse. And I think and, they're... And, and, and yeah, Alex, I'm sorry to interrupt, but this, I think this is a good callback to something you've talked about a few times, which is the urge of third party nationals to get involved in conflicts uh, throughout history. And oh, if I yeah, that's right. If I recall correctly, in addition to uh, Kessler, Ernest Hemingway was one of those involved. In well, Kessler was uh, Kessler and, and Hemingway were both journalists. There were plenty of people in that conflict who'd gone under the auspices of being journalists and then had declared themselves for one side or another and, and fought. That was a conflict that had a bunch of people uh, from outside of, of Spain fighting on, on both sides. Uh, admittedly, the more numerous and more high profile people were fighting with the left slash communists, but there were um, a number of people who were um, fighting with the right slash fascists as well. Fun um, fact, sorry, fun fact based on a prior life. Uh, there are two or three covers that our intelligence services in the US are not permitted to use under any circumstances. And one of them is journalists. Right. 
And for obvious reasons, this is not, we don't want yeah, yeah, our, our journalists to be suspected of being spies and have their heads sawed off like Danny Pearl did. You'll get your journalists killed. Well, there's a, there's a very interesting book I've just started reading by a guy called Peter Kemp, who, um, great title, Mine Were of Trouble, um, who, was, who signed up with the rights in Spain, were one of the very few who sort of wrote about that um, after the, who A, survived and B, wrote about mm-hmm. it after, after the war. Anyway, so Kersler is in Spain for this, um, these events, but uh, as you, as we were saying, both sides are uh, are bad in this uh, situation. The the leftist government had repressed people all over the place, had brutalised them. The right were equally repellent in their behaviour, and 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 sometimes worse. And their eventual success in the conflict gave rise to the rule of Generalissimo Franco, uh, which is the proof in the pudding right. of the right, I think, being worse. But in Malaga, as elsewhere. When the rebels first rose up in 1936, the government, the leftist government, whacked them back down again. Uh, Sir Peter was okay as the reckoning came after that fighting because he was a well-known socialist. He was a well-known man of the left. But his neighbour, who's called Bolin or Bolin, um, uh, which is my Portuguese holidays are reminding me correctly, is some kind of cake as well as a name. Um, he was I'm quite sure, the other. I'm sure we'll get corrected on the pronunciation. Yeah, I'm sure. But <laughs> on the other hand, you know, I, as my figure shows, I eat a lot of cake, so I've done my homework. Uh, Bolin was quite quite the fascist. So his Chalmers Mitchell's neighbour was in trouble, is my point, in 1936. And so this retired British zoologist found himself taking in a household of relatively rabid righties in order to try to ensure their safety. Bolin, his wife, his mother-in-law, six kids, three maids, they all pile into uh, the house, which was flying the Union Jack for their protection. And Bolin uh, asked Sir Peter to look after a packet of sealed documents for him, uh, which um, Thomas Mitchell locked away. Hmm. But the searching lefties were well onto this trick, apparently. That was what a lot of people they were after was do- were doing. So when the anarchists who were organised uh, in- into patrols uh, arrived at St. Peter's house, whilst he was safe, they compelled him to hand over the documents that um, Bolin had entrusted to him. And, and um, there's this scene described um, by Sir Peter to um, Kerstler, who in turn describes it, where this young officer in charge of the patrol opens the packet in front of Sir Peter. And the first thing in it is Bolin's phalangist membership card, which wow. is enough to get him executed. Yeah. Right? And, and the second thing is a packet of pornographic picture postcards uh, and uh, history records the young lieutenant uh, as being equally delighted with both of these finds and uh, pause to note brian it may be hard for the generation of the internet age to understand this awash as our time is with pornography a click or two away but at this time people would send away for these cards they would collect them they would seek them out uh, and so forth and so peter had this brainwave paraphrasingly he said uh look here my dear fellow uh you keep the smutty postcards and i'll keep the membership card i.e the death sentence uh, and suits me said the lieutenant uh, n- no doubt thinking that you know they'd get bowling in the end anyway it doesn't matter and look what i get to keep so this card exchange was done between the men 
and the Bolin tribe remained under Sir Peter's roof for a few days before he was duly arrested. But without the smoking gun, without the proof that the card would have provided, the case against Bolin wasn't strong enough. And so he was, uh, he was allowed to remain at large. And Sir Peter was therefore able ultimately to obtain his release from the charges. And he smuggled his neighbour, or at least his release from, from custody. And he smuggled his neighbour and his family over the border into British Gibraltar, where they found safety. So that's the background. Do we Fast know? Sorry, do we know what happened to the young lieutenant? Is that lost to history? Lost to history, uh, but I imagine he got away scot free and quite happy with a collection of pictures. Yeah, and let uh, me just say, even in my lifetime, so I'm a little bit older than you, as our our viewers can probably tell. Um, even in my lifetime, when I was a young lad, uh, you know, pornography was a magazine. And, right. you, and you had to hide it, you know, and my dad was a minister. And uh, so naturally, I borrowed his porn. Anyway, that's an aside. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm going to keep going determinedly. Fast forward to 1937. Uh, the boot is on the other ideological foot. The rebels give Malaga a good pasting. They have these warships that are unopposed by government navy. And they therefore bombard the city daily from the harbor. And Malaga duly surrenders. Last journalist in town, Arthur Kersler. Mm -hmm. uh, he had hidden his leftist past. because Kersler was a man of, of the left, albeit some on the left won't, won't now want him. He was a man of the political left, in, in his, certainly in his youth. Um, he'd hidden that leftist background in his last visit to Spain. He'd had the incredible ill fortune of having uh, bumped into a Swedish Nazi he'd once oh, met no. <laughs> in a hotel in Seville who'd blown his cover. And on that occasion, he escaped by the skin of his teeth, like Bolin had gone on to do, into Gibraltar. Orders for Kersler's arrest had missed him by a matter of minutes at the hotel. And there was this right-wing Spanish officer who, at the time, Bolin had duped about his identity, about his political past, who felt humiliated by his escape. And that Spanish officer swore to kill Kersler on sight if he ever saw him again. Kersler is staying at St. Peter's as a guest it, once Malaga has fallen uh, and he's the last journalist in town. The rebel forces now arrive to arrest Sir Peter because he's a well-known lefty and now the right's in charge. You're going to get nicked. Boots on the other foot. I love that. E yeah. Exactly. And as ill luck would have it, the patrol that came to collect Sir Peter were led by the Spanish officer who'd sworn to do death upon to, to, to Kersler. And for this moment that Kersler describes, there was this long, they forced him to turn his back to them in the hallway. And this long moment, it seemed he was going to be ex summarily executed on the spot. But guess who's back? Back again, it is Sir Peter's phalangist neighbour, Bolin of the naughty postcards, who arrives uh -huh. as, as this tableau is in place in the hallway. And as are sometimes the quirk of fate in these seismic events, as they play out in history, he's now a senior fascist and he's the officer's cousin. Unbelievable. Like, what are the odds? And so Thomas Mitchell and, uh, and uh, Kersler go on to describe in their respective memoirs that this man who was pumped on the adrenaline of this far right unpleasantness, this sense of finally being in yeah. control, waving this enormous revolver around and in their faces, delighted at the reversal of fortunes that put his neighbor at his mercy. Nevertheless, he returns the favor and he ensures that the pair are merely arrested rather than killed. Hmm. Uh, while, while both Chalmers Mitchell and Kersler go on to endure great privations in captivity, really um, a horrible uh, time um, in Spanish uh, captivity, uh, each 
go on to write books about uh, yeah. at that time. The point is they were both alive to endure those privations. And of course, if Sir Peter's inspired deal hadn't been made with that unnamed young Spanish lieutenant, Bolin would likely have been killed a year before and wouldn't have been there to save them. And quite a thing, Kersler went on later to muse, to owe your life to a packet of dirty pictures. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, that's if 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 Kessler had written and I'm mispronouncing his name, I apologize. If if anyone had written that as a screenplay, and I do a little screenwriting, would, you couldn't sell it. You yeah. couldn't possibly sell it. There's so many things to say about this, and some of them are 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 very contemporary and somewhat heavy. So let's work our way from the not heavy to the heavy. Okay, first lesson always carry porn am i right <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean it's hard to deny from the story isn't it it's it is quite amazing how how over the, the the centuries most new technologies that could possibly be used for publishing are first turned to porn and in this case uh, a life was saved as a result of it second thing that occurs to me is why do extremist movements have membership cards? Well, it's a very fair question. I suppose the answer, I think, in part, is the same reason that early on, in the same way it would get them in trouble, they have symbols like flags and uniforms um, that would get them in trouble with the authorities if, if found or recognized or seized in the home and so forth. It's because they want to have a sense of officialdom. They're so on the fringe that they want something that demonstrates right. that they're a bit more mainstream. You know, we had a a fascist party in the UK that has, I'm pleased to say, collapsed to the point now that I don't even think it's a registered political party called the BNP, British National Party. And that party's leader um, was held as this great sort of rabble-rousing figure until finally his ambition was realised and he was on one of our mainstream uh, uh, panel shows, Question Time, and he was shown to be a not very articulate, not very competent uh, politico. Uh, but, you know, it, there was no way he was not going to go on because it, right. it's, it gave him that it gave him that sense of being established, of being real. Yeah. And that's what they hanker after. And so I suppose that what I'm kind of groping around is that I think that's why they have identity cards. Yeah, because it gives them a sense of belonging. Well, and this is what Adolf Hitler and so many others have exploited so brilliantly and evil, but brilliant is you find the marginalized people who don't have a sense of value and worth in the current society and you show them if they just support your extremist party then they right. have identity they have personhood they have purpose they have so a community because you choose that example i mentioned that hitler had two identity cards for the nazi party and uh suitably enough given the uh, bunch of lies that propped up that evil ideology both of them were false. Uh, the first one, when they started out, had, you know, like 5,000 added to the front because they wanted to suggest the Nazi party was much bigger than it was. Uh, and the second one, when they revisited this later, was reissued as number one to suggest that he was the, <laughs> he was the absolute number one. But, and that yeah. wasn't true either. No. Right? So they, both, of his, both of his identities within the Nazi party were a lie. So I think our viewers will have gathered from some of our episodes that I grew up in a very small town in Ohio. And true story, our police cruisers, of which there were five, were numbered number 78 through 83 <laughs> or whatever the math is. Right. So, so the evil crime syndicates that were invading in waves northern Ohio would know that it was a serious outfit. So Yes, quite. I, I get it. But let's talk about the fortunes uh, and misfortunes of war and changing alliances. It seems one of the lessons here is uh, something we've talked about before, which is loyalty pays off. 
And you never know when it's going to pay off in the future. You know, in our government, we have this phrase, I don't know if you guys say this were in the UK, but uh, kiss up, kick down, kiss up, kick down. So there are government officials uh, who I've worked with, and it's not uncommon, who will suck up to the leadership and treat their underlings poorly, as I know you make a practice in your business not to do. Correct. And I had an experience as a young lawyer for the CIA of being treated very poorly by my boss. Fast forward 10 years, I'm the deputy legal advisor to the National Security Council, and she works for me. And her boss works for me, and his boss works for me, and his boss works for me. And uh, following on the example of some people who treated me well earlier in my career, I never exacted retribution for that. But I could have. Yeah, but she and thought she, the boot was going to drop any given day. Yeah, she didn't know at the time that there might be this future. And now to the more serious stuff a little bit. I mean, people are facing this right now in Ukraine and in Russia. You know, one of my favorite movies of all time, everyone's favorite movie, Casablanca, is all about the changing loyalties of war and who who's in control and who are the winners and who are the losers. And this is playing out now in Ukraine, right? There probably are much fewer than there were a month ago Russian sympathizers, you know, fighting against the regime, but there are some, and there's going to be a day when there's war crimes trials and when there's, yeah. you know, justice and hopefully the Zelensky regime, God, God willing, if they win, will, will, will be fair and not be like the factions in Spain. And, and not just round up the usual suspects. Yeah. Yeah. Good Casablanca uh, poll there. Yeah. One of the reasons we told this story today as we're recording this uh, in mid-May of 2022 is there is a lot of rumor floating around, which I never mentioned on the show until it became more than rumor, that there actually may be a sort of a slow motion coup happening in Russia right now. I think it's quite clear that something I joked about early on is true, that Putin, by all outward appearances, is quite ill. Uh, there's a lot of evidence for this now. And I personally think the idea of someone inside Russia overthrowing him is still pretty implausible, but it's been reported in Newsweek. It's been talked about on foreign affairs. So what happens to the Putinists in Russia if Putin is deposed? And obviously it depends yep. on by whom, but, but what does our story tell us about that, if anything? So, uh, I mean, very little, given that um, the Spanish Civil War was fought between two large and opposing forces that had, um, you know, been in and out of government and were at one another's throats in sizable movements. And sad to say, there is no anti sizable anti-Putin group at the moment that would look like it was, you know, the opposition that could take power. But as and when uh, Putin is no longer in power, there's going to be a big discussion, isn't there, about how pragmatic you should be. You know, one of the criticisms of the uh, allied powers after the war is that they disbanded all sorts right. of, you know, armed forces and police groups that could otherwise have helped you keep law and order and what just very swiftly became lawless societies. So which, which, it, which, by the way, our countries cleverly repeated in Iraq in the early 2000s. Oh yeah. I, you know, there's no lesson in history. You can go on ignoring that. Uh, you can't go on ignoring. Excuse yeah. me. Um, but 
so you know there's always a level too low you can go in the bureaucracy there'll be plenty of people who are using the defense that broadly didn't work at nuremberg which is i was only following orders but actually the most important thing that can happen in in russia i think is some form of the end of the regime of kleptocracy Mm -hmm. and the unwinding of that um, accumulation of huge amounts of I'm all, I'm all for people getting uh, as a politician in my country once said I'm immensely relaxed about people being filthy rich if they've got there on merit yes. I'm completely against kleptocracy by the state handing out in 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 deals that are that would be described as sordid if they weren't if that word wasn't enough because it was so huge yeah. um, assets that belonged to the country and, uh, and to the people that worked in those industries and so forth and the customers of those industries and some unwinding of that is going to probably be the most important post Putin outcome. And part of the reason I mention that is that some of those people have played it very quiet of late. Yes. They're not out there championing Putin. They're certainly not out there saying he's wrong either, you know, but they're not out there in a way that you might've expected people who owed their enormous fortunes to Vladimir Putin because they're trying to hedge and they expect the full guys will just be people in military uniforms and so forth. And what we've got to hope for is that that's not the case. Yeah. Well, you've brilliantly walked me into my key point, which is, is there ever, I don't know, take take your pick, a moral or even a pragmatic justification for hedging? Because it feels like the one of the lessons from your story is pick a side and be loyal to it and damn the torpedoes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a, of course a route that can also get you killed pretty quickly. So, yeah. you know, pragmatically uh, a bit of hedging is something a lot of, I mean, think of people who were under Nazi occupation. Um, even if you were full throatedly in support of uh, the resistance, it would be dumb to say so publicly. And even that is a hedge, right? You know, withholding yeah. any more the, the the true nature of your opinions is the right and honourable thing to do. But it's also a hedge. If someone says, "Are you a loyal Nazi?" and you you know you say yes, because otherwise you're going to get beaten yeah. or you're white, you know, someone's going to get killed uh, whilst you're actually helping the resistance. So you know, there's a bit of hedging even amongst the the bravest of of people. But I want to offer you an even more kind of pragmatic or even some might say cynical uh, position. Putin's Us Pu- cynical? I know, I, I know. But I've long thought, and Putin's a bad example because his country is too powerful and has nuclear weapons. But I've long thought in the case of petty tyrants and dictators that we should offer a sliding scale of global response. That is to say, when it first emerges that petty tyrant X, let's for the sake of argument, call him Assad, is uh, persecuting his people. You say to him, you're going to have to leave, but you can come with your wealth, wherever it came from, you can come with your family, and you'll be immune from prosecution. If you come and you can if you come now, if you come in a month, you uh, don't take the wealth and you can only take your immediate family. If you come in two months, it's only you, you have no family, no assets. And in three months, we're going to kill you on site. Now, that focuses the mind, right? And um, that may sound dreadfully cynical, and certainly the first dictator who takes advantage of it and comes with millions of, uh, of dollars that he's expropriated from the treasury and so forth will be held up as the example of why that view is wrong. But gosh, it could save some thousands of lives in conflict. Couldn't it? One, hold on, I'm doing math, 100% agree. And in fact, at some point in my career, I can't say when and to whom, I suggested the uh, idea only half cynically of the island of misfit dictators. You know, why don't we just have a place where the Assads and the Saddam Husseins and the Marcoses, our listeners will have to look that up because they, re- they won't remember, can go. 
And, and I got two responses, both of which are valid. One is, yeah, it doesn't really fit with our human rights agenda. But the more important one is these guys won't leave. And I say guys, no. because I don't know that there's a female example. Maybe there is, but they just, they, it's always baffling to me why a um, Ceausescu in Romania waits until they ha literally have his head on a spike. Uh, why doesn't he take his millions of dollars and go to an island? I don't understand this about dictators. Yeah, addicted to power on the one hand. And on the other hand, of course, maybe they know something we don't. Maybe they know that the arm of their enemies will always reach out and find them once they've given up power. And whatever assurances they're given, in the end, they'll be found. And so better off shaking the dice, rolling the dice and, and trying to keep it, even if the odds are against you. Well, Interesting that you were talking about your island of misfit dictators. There was a, um, there was a you know, British country house of misfit Nazis after the war. And we, we put up all these senior officers. And then, of course, we bugged the hell out of the house and listened to all their conversations. And it yielded some of the most useful material that went on later to be used, A, in the writing of history, uh, because they were unguarded, right? They, weren't, yeah. they were speaking honestly to one another, not thinking that they were being uh, bugged, rather than all the hedging that they did after, later with historians right. and official histories. But secondly, it gave material for prosecutions and war crimes. Uh, so um, sometimes the island of misfit dictators, mutatis mutandis, uh, can be rather useful as well as a place to put them. Well, like so many things, Alex, this just returns us to The Sopranos. So go watch. Uh, we're not getting paid by HBO, but uh, you'll you'll see a lot of these actions play out at a micro level on, on that on that show. Uh, and now, actually, Ozark. I don't know if you're an Ozark fan, but it is getting. I tried. Really good. I you know I I I gave the, I maybe the first season, first full season, maybe the first. I liked the don't. I mean, no, I'm not going to watch it, but I like the old guy who walked <laughs> around naked, dying, who was ill, and uh, gave him gave up their house. Well, you like that in any but, context, though, right? Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I thought it was a good character, but uh, I suppose I deserved that. Um, but I, you know, I like the central premise. Uh, but I just, I got bored of the execution really quickly. Yeah, I get you. I mean, there's a certain soap opera quality to it. Uh, and, and, but the benefit of that is you could probably have skipped however many seasons in between what just you watched drop, drop and just in. watch the last three final episodes and you'll get it's it finished. It, okay. it, it, I believe in the U S the last one has dropped. I believe okay. I haven't quite finished it yet. So lastly, at least for me about this story, Alex, is, I mean, I'm not kidding about the ID card thing. People should not have ID cards for their extremist organizations. But this, in the end, is a story about friendship. Yes. Right? And the, the willingness to bet on your friend when you have no idea what's going to happen in the future. And uh, we're close friends, but, you know, we're, we're getting up there in years and hopefully none of us are going to be involved in a dictatorship type situation, but loyalty, it can get you killed, but I would posit that if it does, you died a good death. I think that's right. And uh, in a story we'll tell one of these days, the relationship between the Goering brothers, one, an evil, very senior fascist, uh, the other, a good man. Uh, the personal loyalty in that story, I think, is fascinating. The uh, relationship between Chalmers Mitchell and his neighbor yeah, uh, and Chalmers Mitchell and Kersler is very interesting. I think uh, Kersler's book, Dialogue with Death, is one of the most chilling books I've, I've ever read. He describes how in the, um, in the prison you could 
very faintly hear the names of prisoners being read out, read back by the warder for those who are going to be executed that night. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the prison would go totally silent. People would desperately try to hear if their name was on the list. The reason I mentioned it, apart from the great book, he describes how these loyalties would grow in the prison uh, between men who faced these terror, and they were all men uh, who faced these terrible privations. And um, I really recommend that book too. Well, two things about that. One is I haven't read that book, so I will do that. Um, but does he talk about whether he thinks that that reading of the names was a deliberate psychological operation on the part of the captors? Or? No, he, he as normal, uh, he believes cock up rather than conspiracy. It was just, you know, <laughs> yeah. the classic petty bureaucracy meant that you didn't just hear the name, you read it back and very quickly. What, people in prisons, are, are, pe prisoners always become fascinated by the processes because it governs yeah. their lives so much yeah. uh, and learn very quickly, far more quickly than those in authority think, uh, learn what's going on. I mean, I, I haven't been at the bar for a long time, but I, at Big B Bar uh, for a long time, but I spent my share of time in prisons when I was doing criminal law and the prisoners always have got a ear closer to the ground um, than their captors I think would generally I mean, even though they're obviously smart too uh, to what's going on um, would quite appreciate yeah not sure I'd spot you that last part I've, I've, I've <laughs> prosecuted some cases in prisons and the guards are not always so smart but yeah I, I, I don't I don't disagree generally last thing uh, from my side Alex so in, in our country we have a thing called the Fifth Amendment which prevents, as you know, the government from compelling you to incriminate yourself. Sure. Uh, I, I know you have the concept uh, in the UK too, even though you guys have another- We've eroded it in a dozen different ways, but yeah. Well, sure. and also never bothered to write it down. But, but you know, that's like the ID card. Maybe it doesn't need to be written down. But here's my question. Does history tell us, I'm going to get this slightly wrong, so you'll correct me and I'll repeat it if I get it wrong. But does history tell us why- in the midst of all the tyranny on both sides in the Spanish civil war and the changes of power, the, the, the heroes of our story were kind of given a little bit of due process. Why didn't they just shoot the guy instead of not shoot him because he didn't have an ID card? Yeah. So, um, I both because the answer in part is to do with the, it's hard now to describe the extent to which there was international attention on the Spanish conflict right. because it was as if the world had commonly got together and, and agreed in an unspoken way, this is going to tell us what comes next. And, uh, and whether the left or right come out on top and the kind of war they fight and the kind of regime that they are, that's going to be indicative of, of the state of the 1940s. And there were correspondents from all over the world in Spain in the course mm -hmm. of that conflict. One of the complaints from uh, Peter Kemp uh, in his book is about the extent to which the the right were less cooperative with journalists than those on the left were, and therefore the left got better publicity. It might be that the left had a better cause and they therefore got better publicity. Right. But anyway, uh, that's his complaint. The point being, both sides were desperate to be seen as legitimate governments. And part mm -hmm. of being a legitimate government, even if you know your country's in half and, you, uh, and you're, you're fighting along the edges of, of those halves, part of the point of being perceived as a legitimate government is that you enact due process and you're seen to have fair trials, or at least um, you're not seen to have wildly unfair trials, that you're seen to have due process rather than simply executing people. Now, of course, in practice, both sides did plenty of that. Both sides did plenty of summary executions and, and, right. and nominal justice, if, if any. But they were desperate not to be seen 
to do that. And most especially that applied to foreign nationals. And um, part of the point of the story, of course, uh, whilst Bolin was Spanish and, uh, and escaped because, in part because of his protection by a foreign national, both Chalmers uh, Mitchell and, um, uh, and Kersler were foreign nationals. And I have no doubt that that helped uh, them significantly in uh, escaping death as they did. Well, I bring this up, of course, because as we're recording this, the first war crime of a Russian soldier is underway in the Ukraine. And my assessment based on just the Western media that I've seen is they're doing a pretty good job of trying to give this kid, I mean, he's, he's a war criminal, but he's a young war criminal, uh, plenty of very public due process. And yep. I, I guess they've learned that lesson from history. And then, you know, more power to him because one of the, one of the, I think most important turning points of the 20th century was when, and listeners, you can look this up if you don't remember reading about it in school, was when the Allies conducted the Nuremberg War Trials. There were a lot of acquittals. And there were a lot of acquittals, I think, because future Supreme Court Justice Robert Jackson and the other people running that operation knew that much of the rest of the 20th century in terms of international justice would depend on what they did at Nuremberg. And I think they pulled it off. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's largely true. There's still some question marks, I think, over the rightness of some of what happened at Nuremberg. And the only plausible um, thrust of general defense available to the defendants, which was this is Vix's justice, has yeah. a ring of truth to it too, because we did nothing like the same kind of investigation into uh, atrocities on, on our side. Now, ultimately, the right side won the Second World War, and uh, the right people were prosecuted. But there were, there were also other offenses that could have been pursued that weren't, because there's kind of a point to some of the, what they said about it being Vix's justice. Well, yeah, I mean, th this, is, this echoes today, right? Th what the Russian army is doing in Ukraine is not something they invented for Ukraine. This is exactly what Zhukov did when he came across Europe. They just destroyed everything. And we looked the other way because we won. And, you know, I, I don't even, we've talked a lot about making sure that his, historical figures are put in their proper context. And we've talked about it in terms of slavery. I don't know that Roosevelt and Churchill were wrong to do that. I mean, we needed to win, most oh. importantly, and then we needed a stable rest of the 20th century. So, you know, as civil libertarians, you and I would have wanted to do some things differently, but I'm not, I'm not even sure we no, can say they were wrong. That's true. And we enjoy the luxury of never having to make decisions that weighty. Yeah. Well, and that's why we get to sit around and show Drink our viewers good booze our cocktails and Shout, shout the odds. Good talking only, to you, brother. Only one more thing to say, right? Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team, of Jeremy Core, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers.